Amen. Amen. Great worship this morning. I appreciate it so much. I'll tell you what, guys, usually there's a little bottle of water right here. And for the first time in a long time, it's empty. And if you wouldn't mind putting a little Diet Coke in there, too, I'd appreciate it. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, before I get into the Word of God this morning in Matthew, there we go. Here, thank you. I appreciate it, JT. Um, before I get into the message this morning, let me just share with you that we're going to be a do, we're going to be doing a project. And the question, you know, I feel like God asked me, you know, what can this church do? We want to do something significant for the community. We're we're a significantly sized church. We can do things that other churches maybe cannot do, or we can bring them together. And and so. Um, the biggest need that I saw, as God revealed it to me in, in my life, in our community was to secure the schools. Uh, things had just happened down in South Florida and um, uh, attacked there. And so what can we do to do that? We, we checked with the superintendent of the schools. He's on board. The deputy sheriff's on board uh, that's in charge of safety. You'll hear from uh, in just a few minutes uh, at the end of the service. And so... They told us that they needed cameras in the schools, and so we've adopted certain schools, and uh, what we want to do, start with Oviedo High School and Haggerty High School and secure those schools. We're bringing the churches together. There's about 10 so far that say that they want to be a part of it. The community's coming together. I've got meetings with the high school principals this week, and so hopefully I'm going to be getting before the, the PTA. And I say all that to say this. We're going to have a golf tournament. Now, it's true that we're going to ask... Churches take up love offerings during the Easter, I mean, Easter, Christmas services, uh, Christmas Eve. And we often take up a mission offering uh, Christmas Eve service. And we designate it to certain uh, places each year, maybe something different. And so this year it's going to be secure Oviedo schools. All the offering that night, unless otherwise designated, is going to go for that. And so, uh, but that's not going to be enough because uh, what we're going to do is have a golf tournament on February the 1st. Now, in this, we're going to have sponsors, and so if you have a business and you want to sponsor something, be a major sponsor, you know, I'm interested in talking to you. I believe that the whole community is going to be involved in this thing. The mayor's on board and uh, some of the city council. Um, they're, they're donating the golf course uh, to us for that day. That's how much they're into it. And so uh, it's going to be, um, you know, kind of out there. And so maybe your business wants to be a part of that and be on board. But also, many of you play golf, and uh, we are notorious for something here at this church. Guess what it is? Waiting till the last possible moment to sign up for anything. All right? That's just who we are. Got to keep your options open. If you do that, you won't be playing golf in this tournament. There's only 132 spots. Uh, ten churches being involved, the community being involved, uh, and so it's, they're, they're going to be gone. We need to be represented there. Now, we may have to limit the number of places that our, our church can, uh, can be a part of, but you need to go on the website immediately and sign up for this because we're about to open it up to everyone. And then also, some of you that don't play golf, you say, I want to be involved in this. This is, this is a worthy cause. This is kind of a one-time thing that we're probably going to be doing, only one time. But we're going to be having a dinner and auction that night right here on our campus. 500 people is probably going to be our limit, and there's already half of that taken up with the golfers and their spouses. And so 
you're you going to want to go on online and sign up for that, and that way you can bid on some auction items or at least have dinner with us and, and participate in that way. And so if you want to participate, you, you can't wait to the last minute because these slots, these, these places are going to be gone. So I want our church represented because we're not going to have a gospel presentation uh, that, that night or that day. We're not going to be preaching. Our, our ministry is going to be establishing relationships with people maybe we don't know. And we can minister to them in the future, and that's, what, uh, that's where the ministry is, uh, is going to come long term. And so we want our church represented, so I'm urging you to do that right now. Okay? That's the sermon for the day. God bless you. <laughs> All right, Matthew chapter 2. We've been in a series, started a series of messages in Matthew on the Jesus story, the story of Jesus. And um, let me just share with you that, um, you know, I, 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 share, I didn't share this in the first hour because I share it uh, during the uh, dinner with the pastor just about every time. But I can remember sitting in a Sunday school class. And all my traditions and all my beliefs, and I, I was sitting there, and all the, the time, six years, visited, coming to that same church, just going to Sunday school, not really much of the worship service, and I really felt that I, I had the truth. And the truth was, I was going to heaven, <clears throat> and how I was going to get there was on my own. I really felt like the good was outweigh the bad. And I was making sure I can kind of keep a good account there. Good, good's going to outweigh the bad, and I'm going I'm to get to heaven. The teacher taught that day on the plan of salvation, how Jesus Christ is the only one that can save us, that we're all sinners separated from God. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. In fact, it's prideful to think that we can do anything to save ourselves. I thought the guy was a heretic. I went home and told on him to my parents, and they agreed with him. And I was dumbfounded. Who would ever create a religion where it's just all given to you? That's just not, that's just not the way. To, I mean, everything. You work for everything. And so to think about grace is kind of ridiculous to think about. But yet, Matthew was challenged with the same thing my teacher was challenged with that day. How do you bring people from the Old Testament into the New Testament times. They have the traditions. They have their look. They have every way they're thinking that they ought to go with this whole thing. And even we have our Christmas traditions. I'm going to talk about the wise men today. The three wise men. The wise men. How many were there? No, we don't know. Exactly, Larry. We don't know how many they were. Now, why is there three? Well, you've heard the story about so many churches not being able to put on a Christmas play because they can't find three wise men. Well, just think about it. There was about 12 of them you needed. Usually they came in caravans and they ran 10, 12, 14 uh, people at a time. The reason we think there are three is because there are just three gifts. And then we always have them at the manger scene. You have a Christmas card and the, shepherd, I mean, the shepherds are there and the, and the three kings, they were not kings, by the way. They're, they're standing there right there at the manger. They were not at the manger. They were not at there until six months after Jesus' birth. And so we have all kinds of things that we think. You say, those are, those are frivolous things. You're right, they are. But it wasn't frivolous for a Jewish person to think, we are God's chosen people. We were chosen through this man, Abraham. And because we're chosen through him, we are God's chosen. In fact, the rest of these people don't measure up to us. Instead of reaching out 
to those around them, like many Christians, like many church members at least, they were, they were cutting themselves off from the rest of the world. Because you don't want to mess around with the Moabites and the Canaanites. They serve false gods. You don't want those people influencing your kids. So you just stayed away from them. So there's a separation there. And to think that these dirty Moabites could have anything to do with the kingdom of God was just really kind of blasphemous to a Jewish person. So how do you bring people through 400 years of no prophet at all since Malachi into the New Testament and tell them that, that now God has opened up the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone, to the Jew, the people, Jesus was going to, not Jesus, but the Messiah was going to come and rescue them from the Roman, Roman emperor. He was going to come and give them a new freedom. He was going to come and be the political leader of their day. In fact, the Bible even teaches that, called the second coming of Christ, we call it, the coming king. But there was another role of Jesus in the Bible. It's called the suffering servant. It's Isaiah chapter 53, which shows him dying on the cross. Psalm 22, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's all kinds of things in the Bible about the suffering servant. You say, well, how does the Jewish community of the Old Testament really deal with that? Well, they dealt with it by thinking and believing it was metaphorical, that they were the suffering servant. And you can see why they think that. I mean, look what, what's happened to them over the centuries and how they've been attacked. And so here you are, an Old Testament Jewish person, and the first book, by the way, of the New Testament that's even given to us, Mark was probably the first gospel written, but this was first. Why? Because it bridges, it's the bridge between the Old Testament and the New. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience about the kingdom of heaven and how it came through a Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, one of the best ways you're going to tell that is through a story. And that's exactly what we find here today. We find a story that gives us some truth. We have a story that has opposition. You know, any good story has an enemy. It has an enemy right here. And all good stories have a happy ending. And this one does as well, at least for today. Next week, we're going to get to an ending that wasn't so as, ha as happy as we look at some of the prophecies that were fulfilled. But this morning, let's look at this passage at a truth to embrace. Verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. All the characters really are introduced in the story. Jesus, then the place, Bethlehem. Then we find out Herod the king. He's the enemy. And the wise men become the heroes of our story today as they came from the east. It says, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So you keep in mind that here are these uh, the wise men, or magi, as they're called, these men from Persia. Six months, at least six months, and maybe possibly as much as 20 months, they were out in the field, and they look up, and they're stargazers. Some people say they were astrologers, and you say, well, that's the occult. Now, think about the strange ministers this guy, these people were. Strange ministers. Not only were they were Gentiles, not only were they from Persia, modern-day Iran, but they were also dabbling in the occult. My goodness, you would never think that God could use such a person or change maybe such, such people as these. But they were coming, and they were coming to worship, not a savior, 
but they were coming to worship a king. And the rumor was back then, even in the secular world, that there was going to be a king born to the Jews. That's one of the reasons why Herod was so nervous. But there was a king going to be born to the Jews, and they saw this star. Now, there's a lot of you know, rumor, a Kepler uh, story in 1604 about the stars coming together in a bright star, making one star brighter than the other. I don't know anything about that. All I know is if I believe in a virgin birth, which I do in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my goodness, God can make a star shine a lot brighter than the rest of them, right? And so I, I don't have a problem with that personally. But here in Numbers chapter 24, in an Old Testament book, it says, I see him, but now, behold, but not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, Jacob being Israel. And so the Magi were non-religious men, non-Jews. They were, and this was a scandalous thought. Now, the gospel, this good news, is being opened up to the Gentiles. By the time Matthew's writing his gospel, Jesus Christ had lived his life, born, lived, died on the cross, resurrected on the third day. They heard all the stories about Jesus. The problem they were grappling with is how in the world this could be a promise to the Jews and the Gentiles as well. How can we include these so ungodly people in our midst, in our church? And Matthew says, let me tell you a story of what happened. And and maybe many of them have heard that story. And they say, yeah, you know, you're you're right about that. I wasn't going to, we don't brag about that one. But yeah, I remember the story of the Magi. This Matthew now is tying tying together. He's making this bridge and introducing this whole new concept of grace. Paul, in the book of Romans, when he's writing to Romans about doctrine and teaching, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Greek is us. It's the rest of the world. And so here he's using stories to change people's lives. Well, again, anytime you have a, a story, you've got a villain. And anytime you have a movement of God, you always have the enemy getting involved in it. Satan certainly is not going to sit by and just let a church flourish. He's not going to have a movement of God among churches and, and not do anything about it whatsoever. He's always in opposition. And this was the greatest opposition of all. After all, the Messiah was going to be born, and he's going to take on the role of a suffering servant, die on the cross for our sins, and be resurrected on the third day, and establish the church. Man, all kinds of things were about to happen, and Satan wanted to do something, and often as he does, he, he doesn't always, but usually uses a person or people to be the opposition. So we find it in verse 3. It says, And Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Well, he was the kind of king. He was declared king of the Jews by Caesar Augustus. And um, he was the kind of king that, boy, when he was troubled, the whole nation was troubled. First of all, Herod was really a genius. He created cities. He built cities all on his own. He built great buildings. Some of you have been to the Holy Land, perhaps, and uh, hope that one day you'll get a chance to go if you haven't. But Masada... It's a place where we often visit when we go and visit the Holy Land. And it was a place where David was held up in the New Old Testament when he ran from the kingdom. He ran up to Masada because it's a, it, it, you can see for miles and miles and miles around. In fact, the last bastion, I think, of anything that was a freedom in the Roman Empire 
was Masada, and it took the Roman soldiers three years to take it down because it was just no way to get up there without being, killing a lot, of, a lot of people getting killed. And so Herod, having captured this, decided, well, if the greatest king of all, David, was held up there, I'm going to live in luxury there. And he built these cisterns. You know, back uh, over in the Holy Land, there's sometimes certain places only rains a couple of times a year. When it does, it comes down really hard and for days. And so they build cisterns, and they kind of they manufacture wells in the rock. They, they hone out the, the rock itself, and there's wells there. And so he built, it would be said, enough cisterns to hold 10,000 uh, or, or to... Uh, to have 10,000 people being um, uh, nurtured by that water for a span of 10 years. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of cisterns. He, had, he created a way to preserve food. In fact, when archaeologists went up there in the 1940s, they found one of these treasures of food, these, this system that he had, and they went in and dates and berries and things like that, and they actually opened it up and ate it. And so I don't know what happened to them then, but rest of God rest their souls. But, uh, you know, really, it was, it was good. It was still good. He was a genius, but he was also the villain of villains. Here's a man that killed his wife because he wanted to protect his throne. He was afraid his sons were trying to overthrow his kingdom, so he had, all three, he had three sons killed. In fact, Caesar Augustus said it would be safer to be Herod's sow than it would to be one of his sons. Well, here, Herod was troubled. Looking, looking in verse 5, or rather verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet. And then it begins to quote, or, or really paraphrase, Micah, the Old Testament book, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod, not really knowing the Bible, not a man of the Bible at all, goes to the chief priest and he said, Now, this Messiah that you talk about so often, where is he really to be born? Well, the Bible says, you know, it's Bethlehem. Well, that's five miles away. And so we don't have an answer why Herod just didn't go after him. But he thought to himself, well, I don't want to make a big deal out of this right now. I just go in and kill one child, and, and nobody's going to be, no, no riots or anything like that. I'm just going to kill one. And so I'm going to use the magi to go in and find him. And so here's what he said. He says, go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, the wise men weren't that wise because they kind of believed this. All right, that, that's not wise at all, considering Herod's reputation. But he was using them, he was using them to go and find the Messiah so he could come and, and kill him. Well, we look at this and we understand that the wisdom of this world has its great limitations. They were using the wisdom. The Magi was using their own wisdom, their own knowledge. And really, wisdom is just putting what you know together and putting wisdom, putting wisdom to it. But here's what James 3.15 says about our own wisdom. When I was sitting in that Sunday school class, I was using my own wisdom. I was putting life together 
the way I was piecing it together with little knowledge here, little knowledge there, and, and some thoughts maybe of Satan in my mind to kind of put it all together. Here's what James 3.15 says. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. Tim Keller talks about the first two of these. Let me talk about the third one as well. And he says this. He says the wisdom of this world is dated. All right? It's dated. In other words, it's limited because it's dated. For example, I can remember a time sitting in Shoney's restaurant. Now, a lot, a lot of young people don't remember Shoney's, you know, the big boy, and boy, they had the chocolate cake thing with the chocolate syrup over it, you know, 200 calories, I bet. And, uh, but I was sitting in Shoney's with a pastor friend of mine in Atlanta, Georgia, and we were talking about dieting. That was when I was 30 pounds lighter. I was still talking about it. And so uh, he looked on my plate. I'd been to the salad bar. Very unusual for me. Uh, I'd been to the salad bar, and um, he said, you know, everything on your plate is free to eat it, except for that right there. And he pointed to this green stuff. You know, that green stuff's real sweet with marshmallows in it. You know what I'm saying. You know, some of you had that really good stuff. And so he said, that has, I think, fat in it. He said, but the rest of this doesn't have any fat in it. I said, but it's got a lot of calories in it. Doesn't matter about the calories, only about the fat. Anybody remember that? Man, back in the 90s, they were, what they would tell you, you can eat as much of, of, of the, the calories and the starch and the bread, as long as you lay off the fat, you're never gonna get fat. Woo, boy, were they wrong. <laughs> now we realize it's the lettuce and kale and all that that make you fat, right? And it's the chocolate cake that really, you know, kills you so you won't have to worry about it. So, um, no, you know, now they know it's the carbs, right? I mean, it's the carbs, you eat too many carbs, or you just eat too many calories, and you store it, and it becomes fat, and you can get fat without ever eating fat. But we were so sure back then. I can remember people getting on, you know, they were working out on TV. Oh, just take, you know, take this exercise and do this exercise and just don't eat any fat. Big TV shows about that. I mean, if Dr. Oz would have been on back then, he'd have had that one. We know that to be wrong. It's dated. Remember psychotherapy back in the 80s? I mean, all the entertainers. It was just kind of, uh, you know, really uh, the thing to do. You go see your psychoanalyst and get the Freudian uh, look in your life, you know, into the 80s and 90s. Now, by the end of the 90s, comedians on TV were making jokes about the entertainers going to get psychotherapy. Outdated. It's just outdated. We, we can look and so many things and, and today, female, being female or male is genetically fixed, they say, in the 80s and 90s, it was all learned. We, we just had an open slate. In the 1960s, Christianity was considered just a Western religion. It'll never be more than a Western religion. Well, we know now there are more Christians in China, India, Africa, and South America than there are the United States of America. It's dated. <clears throat> and only the Bible can guard us of that. I've mentioned this before, that all of us, or most of us, are embarrassed by what our grandparents believed and how they taught. I wonder if our grandkids years from now are going to be just as embarrassed about what we think and what we say because we're so, so, we're so people of our time. We've got to be politically correct in our time. 
And so it's dated. And the only thing that can save us from that is the word of God. But it's also insufficient. It says, basically it's insufficient because it's, un, it's unspiritual. They needed scripture. You read this. What did they, you know, they needed scripture. They needed to know from the scribes where in the world was this Messiah going to be born. And they said, well, it, it's in Bethlehem, according to the Bible. This reminds me so much of Romans 1, where it says that you and I are born with the knowledge of God in our heart. It's innate. Something about it. You don't have to teach a four or five-year-old that there's a God. In fact, we, the Bible then goes on to say we see it in nature. We see it in general revelation. But you can know about God through general revelation and just the fact that he, you just know he's there, but you can't know who he is without special revelation, which comes from the Bible, the Word of God. You need the Word of God to have the wisdom of God in our life. But then it's also from another world. It says in James 3.13, it's demonic. The place of the battleground in our lives is right here. You know, you can see all these movies and all that about possession. I'm not saying that never happens. But the primary way that Satan influences our minds are right here. How many of those thoughts that you have are actually of God? How many of them are from you? Most of us think we have our own thoughts. How many of them are, are, are gathered like germs off the street? How, many, how, many of our, how much of our wisdom is garnished from the knowledge that we have that really is, is untrue? And somebody says, well, I believe this news program. Well, they come from the right. I believe this news program. Well, they, they come from the left. And this news program is from another world altogether. And so, you, you know, you go back and forth, but you, you take them in context. Why? Because they have a bias. Some of you go to, you're going to a university somewhere. Well, this is what my professor believes. Yeah, but why does he believe what he believes? Where, where is he coming from in his wisdom, in his knowledge? You can't just take it point blank of what he's teaching, because what he's teaching 20 years from now is going to be probably obsolete unless it's, it's mathematics or something. But certainly in the, in the realm of philosophy and religion, it's going to be obsolete in 20 years. And it's proven by history. Now, God is a loving God. But my thoughts in that Sunday school class were demonic. And it's not that I was foaming at the mouth or my head was turning around. But what I believed in the, in the germs of the street and, and also what little I gathered from church had everything to do within my mind of putting it all together and putting it all together in the wrong way. Two plus two equals six in my mind. Because you had to work your way to heaven. And to introduce to me to that day a brand new doctrine that said it's open to everybody, even deathbed confessions, even those that are just the lowest form of life. I mean, after all, they didn't work their way to heaven. They didn't work as hard as I did. The good doesn't outweigh the bad for them. New concept for me. The Bible says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments or speculations and every lofty thing that raises self up against the knowledge of God and bring every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's our goal. 
to bring every thought to the obedience of Christ and have his wisdom, a wisdom from above. It says the wisdom of, of, from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. Well, the plan of God always has its opposition, but the plan of God also has within it a destination. And these men had something going for them, a response that we need to desire in our own life. As we look in closing the message in verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had seen, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest to the place where the child was. They followed the star. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Notice they came into the house. There was no manger here. Months later, they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, and that points to royalty. Frankincense, that points to a perfume, to divinity, the divine, the divine nature of the Lord. And myrrh, which was often used a perfume for embalming fluid, which points to the passion and the death of Christ. Now, did the Magi say, well, you know, what we need to do is come up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, because there's going to be a lot of songs written about this, but also... Um, we need to come up with these three things because this is what they point to. They had no clue. No idea whatsoever. Sort of like getting up and preaching a message, something you plan for weeks and weeks and weeks, and boy, it just fit that day. God knew. God knew the three things they needed to bring. And they worshiped with generosity. That's what really Christmas is all about, isn't it? To many of us, at least. Now, Jesus is the reason for the season, and in a way, we are the reason for the season. He came and died on the cross for our sins. And yet, when we, we, we look at this, we, we do something very unusual at Christmas. You know that, right? Uh, usually when somebody has a birthday, you come and bring them gifts. I remember when uh, we were over at Pam's parents' house years ago, my niece, my, my, our first niece, our first uh, baby really in the family on her side, um, must have been less than maybe two years old. Really experiencing Christmas as she would know it for the very first time. There the presents were all scattered around. I was kind of off to the side talking to somebody. His house was just filled with people. And I heard this bellowing cry. I mean, it was sincere. There was, like she was in pain or something. Looked around, little Christy was crying. And I asked my brother-in-law, I said, what, what's going on? He just kind of laughing a little bit. He said, she's really upset that everybody else is opening up Jesus' presence. Hmm. Ooh, that convicted me. Generosity. They were moved to give the king something of royalty because of who he was. Christmas within our hearts, if, if our hearts are changed, now if they're not changed, by, by the, the Lord Jesus, by his grace, then nothing is going to make us generous, probably, except for, you know, a heartfelt movie or something. But if our heart's changed, and I believe these guys had a changed heart, then it's going to affect our generosity. 
one of my favorite stories ever was from Billy Hanks, guy I worked for, minister I worked for back when I was in seminary. And uh, we babysat, Pam and I babysat his, his kids a few times. And uh, he tells a story back when uh, one of his children was about eight years old. And uh, Billy traveled a lot, but his daughters just adored him. And he came home, and it was Christmas time, and he opened up her present and it had a nice shirt. Not a color he said he would have picked out, maybe, but a beautiful shirt, a beautiful tie to go with it, some cufflinks. And he, sa- he looked at her and says, Honey, how much did this cost you? And she said, Everything I had, Daddy. A generosity. Why? Because there was a love there. Something changed with them. In fact, not only were they generous, but they also found not only generosity in their heart, they found something more than that. In verse 10, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then we have, They gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned, it says in verse 12, In a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, I want you to get the, the picture of what happened here. They came to worship a king. They came with good motives, but they went away worshiping a savior. So how do you know that? They came following a star, something from the outside. They were astronomers or astrologers. They're looking up in the sky. They recognize a star that should not be there, and they begin to follow that star in a miraculous way. They came upon that, uh, that house where the savior was. They, they gave them, uh, he gave them, they gave them him uh, gifts, but then the Bible says, God spoke to them. Now, before, God was guiding them with a star. But he says, now look, you're about to go and tell Herod something you shouldn't be telling him. You go out another way because he's going to kill you. They, were, they heard the voice of God in their life. Something a lot more than what they bargained for and just simply coming to worship a king. They were acknowledging now a Savior and Lord of the universe. Boy, what if this had never happened? What if this whole thing, I, I ran across a story, and I'll just read it to you. It's based on a Christmas card. It said, a, a Christmas card was once published with the title, If Christ Had Not Come. It was founded upon a Savior's words, If I Had Not Come. The card represented a pastor's falling into a short sleep and a study on Christmas morning and dreaming of a world in which Jesus had never come. In his dream, he found himself looking through his home, but there were no little stockings in the chimney corner, no Christmas bells or wreaths of holly, and no Christ to comfort, gladden, or save. And he, he walked out to the street, but there was no church with no spire pointing to heaven. He came back. And he sat down in his library, but every book about the Savior had disappeared. The doorbell rang, and a messenger asked the preacher to visit his poor dying mother. He hastened with a weeping child, and he reached home, reached the home. He sat down and said, I have something here that will comfort you. He opened up his Bible to look for a familiar promise, but it ended with the book of Malachi. There was no New Testament. There was no gospel. No promise of hope and salvation. He could only bow his head and weep with her in bitter despair. Two days later, he stood beside her coffin and conducted the funeral service. 
There was no message of consolation, no hope of heaven, no gospel, no love, no hope. They found something more. That day in Sunday school, I do remember going home telling my parents, and for the next two years, I just didn't believe it. Just didn't believe it. For two years following that, I believed it, but I didn't know what to do with it. I just didn't know. I mean, what I was doing, surrendering my heart to Christ, giving the lordship of my life, the throne of my life over to him, that seemed so radical to me. And I came to the point, it was four years after um, that Sunday school class, age of 16, I came to the place in my life of searching for something. And what I was searching for was peace in my heart. And I knew I'd never have it without the Lord. That's what I was after. That night, I got that. And I got something a lot more. Something I never would have dreamed of. Salvation. Forgiveness of sin, peace, hope for the future, a relationship with God, something far more than I had ever imagined. And as, the, as with these wise men, they got God's wisdom. They knew what direction to go in. And so what about you today? What is it in your life that's saying to you, you don't need to believe this because. I mean, your religion, you say, my religion teaches that I go through these rituals and I'm okay. My religion teaches me all I got to do is be baptized and I'll be okay. Or my, my belief is there is no religion. I, I talked to a guy one time, he says, I don't even believe Jesus existed. And I said, what year is it? And suddenly he said, okay, all right, he existed. All those years he thought, oh, he didn't, he didn't, never even exist. What is it in your life that would keep you from saying, I know that I'm a sinner. I, I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to own up to who I am. What is it about what you believe that would stop you from saying, there's nothing about me that can save myself? Because I'm a sinner, I'm separated from God. One sin's enough to separate me from God forever, but boy, I've done a lot more than that. I can't even live up to my own standard, much less God's. What is it about your life that would say, number three, that I'm going to get out of the saving business and I'm going to trust Jesus and Jesus alone to save me? What would stop you from doing that? What belief has been placed in your mind? What tradition that would you, cause you to reject this newer idea? that God loves you, he died on the cross for you, and we're saved just simply by his grace and his desire to see us with him and live with him forever. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd like you to have the courage today to name that thing that's keeping you, that belief that's in your heart and would you ask God to take it out of your heart, show you the way? And then, would you pray with me right now?
And the, the prayer is not magical. I'm not saying that. But if you really mean this prayer, I believe that Jesus, as you call on his name, will save you. So would you pray with me right now? Lord God, I know that I'm a sinner. I own up to it. I, I take ownership of what I have done. And then, God, I know that I can't save myself. There was a reason why Jesus came. He died for me. And he died equally for everyone. No matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are. And so I trust Jesus to save me, asking forgiveness of my sins and asking him to come into my life. I put him on the throne of my life. I know you can do a better job, God, than me. So I trust you with my life as well as my soul. In Jesus' name, amen.